0: Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor This is the word of the Lord. Okay, would you join me as we pray? Father, as we broach this topic, we are a room full of stories, a room full of um, wounds and brokenness. And so we pray that you would bring healing, you would bring light, you would bring deliverance. You would do your work, Lord Jesus, setting captives free, bringing sight to the blind, that the lame could walk. Would you do this work, Lord, in Christ's name? Amen. In our series of Theology and Life, We're moving along here, we're about halfway through, and tonight we turn to the topic of sexuality, and it really comes at a crisis point in our culture. Um, For decades, the cry in American culture was really the freedom of sexual desire, whether the issue was on the college campus or uh, open marriage, gay marriage, the use of pornography. When you would read articles, when you would hear people speak, the emphasis lie more on the idea that we ought to have freedom to express our desires and that's a good thing. But as of late, we've had to come to terms with the dark side of sexual desire. Uh, Some of it has been the research that's been done on pornography. Not only more awareness of human trafficking that feeds the industry, but the effect of pornography upon the brain and uh, the psychological state of people. And so now, instead of justifications, we're finding campaigns like Break the Cycle or Fight the New Drug. And then we could turn most recently to the Me Too movement, And the revelations that have come there, statistics like 80% of women report some form of sexual harassment and assault, 51% unwelcome sexual touching, 30% have been shown someone else's genitals against their will, 27% have been sexually assaulted. I cannot get used to reading those statistics. May we never get used to reading those statistics. This is the norm, the day-to-day reality for um, many of our not only biological but spiritual mothers and sisters and daughters. And sadly, the church has not been the refuge. It should be. Uh, Rachel Denhollander, who's been a leading voice in the Larry Nassar trial, said this, Church is one of the least safe places to acknowledge abuse because the way it is counseled is, is more often than not damaging to the victim. There is an abhorrent lack of knowledge for the damage and devastation that sexual assault brings. That's a hard thing to say because I'm a very conservative evangelical, but that is the truth there are very, very few who have ever found true help in the church. And as I have talked to women over my pastoral career, I would say that that's not inaccurate. Recently at our elders' retreat, I mentioned uh, we spent a significant amount of time talking about this very issue, uh, coming out of it convicted um, that our churches must be a hub of healing, and a hub of advocacy. And so our first step is forming a task force, for lack of a better uh, phrase, where we can bring together women in our church along with our leadership, male leadership, and talk about what does it mean to develop a culture like that. But ultimately, what is needed is something God must do. We need to recover a renewed perspective a new vision for sexuality, and a new culture of behavior. And 1 Thessalonians is one passage that helps us along the way, as it calls us to a perspective of true sexuality and the practice of true sexuality. So let's spend some time looking at those two things. First of all, the perspective of true sexuality, and the key concept here is honor. Honor. But before we go into that, I feel like it's important to define some terms. Uh, The term sexuality in the culture is used in a broad and a narrow sense. In a broad sense, you find it used in relationship to biology, uh, the activity of sex, relationship, desire, gender. Increasingly so in our culture, there's a separation between biology and identity. And so someone's sexuality is understood to be chosen or constructed by them. Now, in the Bible, uh, you find also a broader, broader and narrower usage. In the broad sense, sexuality could be said to be our maleness and femaleness and everything that goes with that. But also there's a narrow usage. We find it in this passage talking about the way we behave with our sexual desire. But there are a few critical differences between what we hear in the culture and what we hear in Scripture. The first is the understanding that we really can't separate biology and identity, even though that's a complex issue, I know. But we can't separate them, and when we do, it's to our own peril. But more importantly this, that the starting point for biblical sexuality the foundation is being made in the image and likeness of God. That's very different than what you find in the culture. As Psalm 8 says, we have been crowned with glory and honor by God. And this is the reference point you find in the passage. It's referred to in a few different ways. One is Paul mentions sanctification, what it means to be set apart. He mentions the idea of holiness. And then he says honor. Honor. Now if we move to another letter of Paul's, he says this, that the old self is the self that is corrupted with selfish desire, with evil desire. But the new self is being renewed, listen to this, in the knowledge of the image of God the Creator in true righteousness and holiness. And so, you know, the, the new self is being renewed by God where we understand who we are. And so the place that Paul takes this is all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the place that says, do you, non- do you understand who you are? that you are made in the glory and likeness of God? Do you have this high view of yourself? Because that's the starting point for biblical sexuality. But the problem is, sin clouds our memory. Uh, I read of a short-lived comic book hero, uh, Gemini. Some of you that are really into this probably say, I know who Gemini is, but I think there are a couple, couple Geminis. So, if I talk about one, don't get upset with me. So, um, but anyway, Gemini is a government superhero, and his distinctive is, after he completes his mission, he forgets who he is. He forgets he's a superhero. And this is sin's effect upon us. It robs us of the understanding that we have been made in the image and likeness of God, especially when we get to the topic of sexuality. Where that thing is stolen from us through spiritual amnesia, ignorance, and hard-heartedness. And the consequences are not small. Think about it just for a second. If your understanding of who you are is genes and chemicals, uh, if your understanding is that you are the highest animal on the evolutionary chain, sex must be for you basically hunger and desire met. At worst, it's going to be power, control, dominance. But if you understand yourself having been made in the image and likeness of God, after the glory of God, that means that you express that through holiness and honor, but even passion is pure, and even eroticism is holy. You can see examples of this in Psalm 45 and Song of Songs. I encourage you to go there and read it. So the act of sex itself is an affirmation and a confirmation of who we are. That's the purpose. An affirmation and a confirmation of who we've been made to be in the glory and likeness of God. Um, I don't know if some of you have been following the HBO series Westworld. You know, it's not an easy thing to watch. I'm not recommending it for everybody. Um, But it really uh, raises some profound questions. It's set in this futuristic world, this wild west that's like an amusement park, where it's populated by android hosts. And, you know, they're so human that you can't tell that they're not. Part of that's because they're played by humans. So they're really (laughs) convincing. Really convincing. Um, Anyway, but those that pay to come to the park come to live out their fantasies. And their fantasies basically boil down to two things, shooting people at will and having sex at will. And so these questions are being raised, really questions about what's consciousness and all sorts of things. But one of them is, is it appropriate even to treat a non-human android this way? That's the tension it puts you in. And of course, uh, so far the answer has been no. No. Thankfully, how much more image bearers of God? So the Christian faith says our experience of sex should actually heighten and remind us who we are. The experience of the bedroom ought to leave a man and a woman feeling like a king and a queen, not a slave. It ought to result in esteem, not exploitation. All of this is wrapped in the idea of Paul's honor. Now, let me illustrate this. If you've been to a wedding, a Christian wedding, you know this is some of the language that's used. I pledge all love and honor, duty and service, faith and tenderness. I take thee to have and to hold, sickness and health, death to us part. Those words are devoted, they're even heroic, aren't they? I mean, those are, those are majestic words that the groom and the bride say to one another. And after they say them, and everybody parties a little bit, the idea is they then go and they express those very words in nonverbal communication, sexual intimacy. But you see, that's the context. That's why the Bible's understanding of sex has always been, it's a seal on the covenant. It confirms what has been said by God. But I don't want to reduce sexual activity to marriage, because Paul is saying something more here. You know, for the unmarried who practice chastity, whether you're a single person hoping to be married, whether you're a widow, whether you're someone that refrains from same-sex sex, sex, whether you're someone that is called to celibacy, the same honor is bestowed upon you. And this is where our culture will really, you know, do do us a bad one, because If you are seeking to be celibate in American culture, you are thought to be naive, weird, right? Desperate in a way, or incomplete. But in the eyes of the Bible, you're actually honored because Jesus Christ was celibate, and no one was more honored than Him. And He remained celibate His entire life. And so that glory is still there. And also we find that God gives us grace to reinstate us to a place of honor even when we've failed. You've heard a few times in this service that we understand because sin has touched every area of our lives, all of us are sexually broken. None of us has it right in our thoughts or our behavior. What our culture finally is coming to terms with, for for a while we had this idea that people would recognize that evil existed in bad desires, but not in the realm of sex. Basically, sexual desire was basically always good. Now, again, coming to terms with the fact, it ain't. There's a brokenness involved. And yet we find through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, through his death, through his resurrection, through the righteousness that he gives us that belongs to him because of his perfectly faithful life to God, because of those things, you and I can actually find ourselves back into a place of honor. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is talking about unrighteousness. And he, he, he moves then into sexual sin. And he talks about sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality. And then he says this, And such were some of you. Listen to that past tense. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Gospel has brought you into a state of honor, even if it was last night that you transgressed that line. This is God's amazing grace. And I will say, you know, our support groups in our community that we've had for years really testify to this. I've said before, you know, we have these sexual wholeness groups, both men and women, same-sex group. But I'll just be honest, I don't understand why 100% of our people haven't been through those groups. Because all of us are broken, right? Not like 5% or 7%. There are such wonderful places of healing and restoration. We long that for you. But let me now move from the perspective, the unique perspective that God gives us on sexuality to practice of true sexuality. And before the key concept was honor, now the key concepts are knowing and justice. Knowing and justice. Paul says, each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So you see a connection there. Those that do not know God do not know how to control their sexuality. And the reverse is true. Those that know God then know how to control their sexuality. That's what he's talking about. Now, what particular things about knowing God, what particular things about knowing God help us to learn to control sexual desires? What things do we need to know? One is the commitment of God. You know, the God of the Bible uh, doesn't just hook up with us, right? Right? He doesn't do one night stands, but he enters into forever love, exclusive public commitment with a people. It's called a covenant. And as God entered into the covenant with Israel, Israel in turn got to know God's personal name. They got to call him by that name. They got to know his promises. They got to know his love and so the idea that sex would be reserved for a covenant between one man and one woman, while our society interprets that as prudish or oppressive, God actually sees it as sacred and protective. The covenant serves that place. You know, uh, There are certain flowers that are fragile. The orchid is one. If you've ever had an orchid, you know It has to stay in a certain temp. 60 to 85 degrees. It likes morning sun, but not afternoon sun. If its leaves get too green, it's not getting the right kind of sun. You can't put more water in it until the soil completely dries. It's a fragile beauty. God places sexual activity within the covenant of marriage because it's, it's like that organ. It's a fragile beauty. It's something that should be cared for and watched and nurtured. I mean, this is a a radical, crazy thought in our day. But, you know, in the church, God, to look at it one other way, God gives us this metaphor, we talked about it the last couple weeks, of the family of God. That's the primary metaphor. That's the way we're to relate to each other. And then you see him basically take sexual ethics and apply it to that, where he says, I want you to treat older women as mothers, older men as fathers, you know, Younger men as brothers. Younger women, with, he adds, with absolute purity as sisters. Treat them as sisters. But God intended you to relate. How do I say this without really messing this up? Because you're going to say, well, what about dating? What about it, 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 you? I am relating to one person sexually, just one person. That should be my wife. And that means all other relationships get into this set into this idea of family of God. But right, one of the effects of sin is it it inflates everything, and so what should have been sacred becomes obsession and gets spilled everywhere, and so everything gets sexualized. You know, brother sister relationships get sexualized they, uh, in the form of adultery or friends with benefits. Brother brother sister sister relationships get sexualized through homosexuality. Even parent child relationships get sexualized through incest, incest and child pornography. But God says the covenant reminds us there's this one sacred place. Because, you know, sexuality, one of our elders once said, it's like nuclear power. None of us can handle it. I mean, if it doesn't stay where it's supposed to stay, it causes great damage. And our society is beginning to see that. None of us can handle it on our own. We need community. But it's in that place that flourishes. But a second thing about practice, let me mention. In this, I I wish I had a better word to say, what do we come to know about God? That that he's got this multi-layered dimension for us when it comes to sexuality and how we understand it. I mean, one, in the male and femaleness, he gives us a picture of unity and diversity coming together. This beauty, it literally is the man and the woman come together as, you know, separate but form oneness in its most biological sense. He gives us a picture of otherness. And here I'm not just talking about the other partner in sex, but rather children. the, The modern view of sex, you know, children are like a footnote. In fact, I find that people tend to divide those questions. There is my sex life, and then there's the question, do we want to have kids? But, you know, God actually bound them together. He put something inherent in sex that forces you to think about relational responsibility. As much as we want to get rid of it, even turning to abortion. But he built it in there to remind us, you know, sexuality will have a fruit just as I unite myself to you, and your life becomes fruitful. But lastly, most importantly... That temporary, earthly practice of sex, and I didn't uh, misspeak there, temporary, it's temporary for this time on earth, is to point us to the eternal love of God. This is the point of it. Paul says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God has a claim on my body and your body before any other sexuality does. And then, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. This is deep stuff, friends. That all believers in Christ, everybody that's put their faith in Christ, has been bound together in intimate spiritual union with God. That will culminate. That's why they call heaven, remember, consummation. The groom gets the bride, they consummate. And the heights of whatever sex tries to mirror just goes full-blown in heaven. That side of pleasure. But there's two things about that, let me say, that I think are important. Uh, You know, sex in our day and age tends to be one-dimensional. People see it as something for pleasure or to let off a pressure valve. God sees it much broader, much deeper But there are two things that are really important we see. One is this. Spiritual intimacy with God is essential, but sex is not. This is heresy, right? But you do not need sex to be happy. And our culture is constantly trying to convince us that you need to have sex to be happy. And it's not true. It's not true. We all need intimacy, that's for sure. But we all don't need sex, and we all need physical intimacy. So in the community of the faith, you have the holy kiss, right? We're redeeming the idea of holy affection. And that's going to look different for different people. You know, in some ways, as you work in community, some folks, you know, uh, are going to be like, great, well, I think of Russ Whitfield, if you know Russ, you know. Russ has made our session much more physical. Uh, Our elders, uh, actually, there's a few guys on there that do. You know, you're not going to get out of the room without like tight hugs and real close right here in conversational. You know, typically what he says is bring it on in. Bring it on in. Come on, let's go. You know, some of us, you know, we're not wired that way. That's okay. You know, maybe it looks different. And also, too, people have stories, right? They have wounds. But the community should be physical affection, and intimacy, but let's not confuse that with the sexualized version of everything. But lastly, before I get justice real quickly, uh, spiritual intimacy is the power for regulating your sexual intimacy. Okay, so the Bible tells us that God has provided marriage as an outlet for people that have sexual desire and want to act upon it. And that's something that you might want to think about seriously, if you haven't already. I mean, you know, pornography and hooking up with people was never meant to be a supplement for single life. Right? There's only God's given that provision. But even that provision isn't enough because married people struggle with sexual brokenness. The power for change is the spiritual intimacy side. So we need to begin here. We need to say, if I am struggling in a way and I find myself pulled in and falling into temptation and all the things that I know aren't good for me and good for other people, I need to start with, how is my intimacy with God off? What's missing here? Paul says when he says, know how to control, it's a process. It takes time. You know, I, I became a Christian many moons ago, but for a good part of my first 15 years of my life, I was just a pagan kid, doing what pagan kids did. And then somewhere in my 20s, I got entered into the church, and God began to renew my understanding of sexuality, and I've been on that journey ever since. This is part of what our community does, but the power is in that spiritual intimacy. But lastly, I I want to say a word about justice because it's prevalent in this passage. Now, again, in recent history, most of the justice conversation we've been getting is justice in terms of I have a right to have sex with whomever or however I want. That's been the justice issue that's been hammered. In recent years, in the last couple of years, it's shifted gladly. And justice has come into the issue of what about women? In those statistics I've read, what about men who have suffered abuse? Right? Who are the victims of pornography? Important things like that. The problem is, because in America we really have a big thing on individuality and there's a place for the individual, we have an individualistic view of justice. Justice, though, is other-centered. It has concern about the other, not just yourself. And it's not a call just to express freedom, but to guard the dignity of of your neighbor. Paul says it this way that no one should take advantage of his brother and sister in this way. You've heard me say this a lot I'll say it again. Uh, consent is a wonderful thing I'm glad our society presses it, but it never will be enough. Consent isn't enough. The Bible goes far farther than that because you can take advantage of someone even if they give you consent. The Bible would say even if someone flat out tries to seduce you you are obligated to protect them from it. To protect their dignity. You are obliged to protect your brother, yes, be your brother and sister's keeper. And so the Lord warns that he's an avenger. He's a jealous God. And there's a word for those of you here that have suffered wounding and abuse. The Lord, has, the Lord did not miss that. The Lord is jealous and he will avenge. He longs to be a redeemer before an avenger, but he will not allow the wounds and the transgressions against his children to go unanswered. And so this passage is trying to pull you and I in and out where we have renewal And we address it in a way that's different, where God outfits us with a new perspective. He then challenges us in a new sort of practice together, which we do together as a Christian community learning. I think that's enough for now. Let's pray. Father, I uh, thank you for the words that you speak to us and the vision you give us. You're so zealous to bring us back to our dignity. Um, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for those especially that have suffered uh, at the hands of those that have oppressed them and abused them. Father, I pray that their healing would be um, much faster and more complete than they could ever imagine. And I pray our community would be not an obstruction to it, but a part of it. I pray for all of us that struggle every day with temptation, and that's all of us. Oh Lord, we pray that the intimacy and the honor you've given us would be our strength. And lastly, we pray that we might be a light for our city and our friends. Not a light of self-righteousness, but a light of what it's been to be redeemed into honor. In Christ's name, amen.